Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 16, says this. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. Now, if you have been a Christ follower for any amount of time, you have asked every question that possibly could be asked about this scene. You have asked yourself the question of, what would I do? How would I respond? What about this? What about that? The, um, the, the, the what ifs, the possible what ifs, and then the very practical, how do we handle this, that, or the other? And so chances are you and I are in a very similar position because we've asked the questions about what in the world? What in the world would cause these men to just drop net and leave? Leave their way of life, leave their, their money-making, their whatever. I mean, they left their father with the hired hands in the boat. I mean, how awkward was that moment for the father and the hired hands? Did the dad say anything? Did the hired hands go, uh, Zebedee? <laughs> they just left. Are they coming back? I don't know. But I think we have a common bond in this moment because the calling of the disciples is a fascinating encounter. And I think it brings more questions a lot of times than it does answers. But in Mark's account of the good news, we don't get all the details. We get that he teaches us more about Jesus and the kingdom. He was introducing us to this kingdom. And we don't just learn about Jesus, but we actually learn about ourselves in the midst of Mark's text the following of a teacher was a very common practice in, um, in that day. But what was not common in this scenario is the way it went about. See, for most people, in the way the rabbinical system worked, it was the student approached the teacher and said, would, would you teach me? I want to be under your tutelage. I want to sit with you. I want to follow you. I want to come after you. And I want to be like you. And I want to do what you do. And all these different things. And so as they had been prepared through the systems, as these kids were growing, they were obviously being measured by some of these rabbis. And then their stories were known. And there would be these kids who would, who would make their way to the cream of the crop. And they, they would know this is what they wanted to do. They wanted to follow a rabbi. And they would be judged and based on these things. And they would say, well, yes, you can or no, you can't. And it's interesting because um, I was talking to a tattoo artist here in, in Asheville. And I remember asking him, I was like, how did you get in to the tattoo world, into the tattoo business? What did you do? And he goes, man, it was the worst time of my life. And it was fascinating because the guy he wanted to learn from did not have any open positions at the time. And so he kept showing up at his house, knocking on his, his house door, which was also the studio itself, knocking on the house door and, do you got anything for me? I'd love to just sit and I'd do anything in your situation to just be close and learn from you. I want to apprentice you. And the dude's like, no, I ain't got nothing and shut the door. And so the guy just was telling me the story of his journey was he'd show up and keep asking. He eventually just started sweeping the front porch. 
That's what he did. He showed up and started sweeping the front porch for the guy. And the guy's like, what are you doing? He's like, I want to learn from you. He ended up sleeping on the guy's front porch for a period of time because he was so desperate to learn from and get in to the business through this guy's apprenticing. And what was amazing is after six months of doing that, the artist opens the door one day and he's like, you really want to learn? He's like, yes, get in here and don't touch any of my, and he, he, I I won't finish the sentence, but he says, get in here, don't touch anything, you can sweep. That was what it took for him to get into this. And in a day of reality television where everything is being judged, everyone is vying for the top spot, we have this mentality of this is how we approach Jesus. We're actually like, hey, Jesus, notice me. Look what I'm doing. I've been doing this for a really long time. Why don't you look at me? Give me the vote. Turn your chair around and pick me. That's what we think of when we think of following Jesus. But the reality is Jesus didn't operate this way. He comes to us. He invites us in a day where all of this doesn't make sense to us because we have this mentality that we must earn, we must work, we must deserve. Jesus shatters all of that. He comes to us and he comes with an invitation. And his invitation is not based on what would qualify someone in the world's eyes. Ordinary people. These fishermen that Jesus approached is a picture of his one-way divine grace. Nothing about these men would seem popular or powerful, but the reality is these men were going to be used to teach teachers, instruct instructors. These men were going to be used to take the message that ultimately is changing everything around the world. The Savior, the King of everything, which Jesus is portrayed as in Mark's Gospel, makes it very clear in His coming close to the poor, to the fishermen, men who were not teachers. Eusebius, one of the church fathers, would call this mission common men with an uncommon mission. Common men with an uncommon mission. And the invitation has a call that we must answer. And this answer, for those of you in this room that like moderation, this call is anything but moderate. If you read in, Mark, in, in Luke chapter 14, listen as Jesus was addressing a crowd. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish? That's a very interesting little tagline right there. Don't begin until you count the cost. Having been in student ministry for roughly 18 years or so, I have been around the emotional roller coaster that is student conferences, where you get everybody in the right frenzy of emotion, and then everyone runs forward because everyone else is running forward. There's no counting of costs, unfortunately. 
and you see it. As a youth pastor taking students to conferences who get whirlwinded into this respond to Jesus, follow Jesus, and then five or six weeks later, they're like, eh, it must not have worked. Jesus very clearly says, count the cost. And so some of you in this room, in your slowness to following Jesus, you are being obedient to what Jesus said. Some of you in this room, you're, you're, you're wrestling with Jesus, and you should. You should count the cost, because it does cost you not a little bit, but everything. But he also says something here. Jason, I, I thought we weren't supposed to hate. That word hate is being used comparatively, and the New Living captures that. You're to hate your mother or father, it is to appear that you hate them because of your devotion to Jesus. When I uh, was a sophomore or freshman in college, I knew I was kind of just floundering and I didn't know what was next. And so my sophomore year, I transferred to a smaller school outside of Atlanta. And I remember the youth pastor that I was uh, working with, working with middle school students, he handed me this, this sheet that kind of said, hey, I don't know what you've got going on in your head and heart, but this looks like something for you. And it was a, a, a year-long missions trip, ultimately. It was going to be traveling the United States with other college students, twofold, doing a research project and also going into schools and churches and just challenging uh, the church and challenging schools and, and, and through character and different things like that. And I really sensed that this is what the Lord was leading me to, but I knew that meant me stepping out of college. And Jesus said that he came to bring a sword. I hope you understand that. He did not say he was going to speak and everyone would be lovey-dovey, because the fact is, it's not. Jesus divided the crowds he would speak to. They were divided in their hearts. And so when I, when I said yes to go, Jesus, I do think you're leading me in this, I had to have conversation with parents. I had to have conversations with aunts and uncles and grandparents who were like, you, you, you know you're making a mistake walking away from school. You know you're doing these things. And, and it was no disrespect to my family, but it was I knew that Jesus was calling me. And if he was, I w- he would take care and he would provide. And I was trusting. And so the reality is, from the outside in, people may have gone, well, that dude hates his parents' advice. The reality was I knew what Jesus was calling me into. I knew that as I stayed close to his word and close to him, that he would walk and take me and journey me through where I needed to be. For some of you, it may be the Lord maybe calls you to lay down your business and everything that financially is coming in. And from the outside appearance, because of your obedience to go in that, they may, people may think, well, that dude hates money. <sighs> that dude clearly hates money. And the reality is the following of Jesus to the Christ followers, to be fiercely protected and to appear that everything else is hated because of what Jesus has done, it is most valuable to us. Following Jesus with everything, it looks as if there is no regard for fame, fortune, popularity, or pleasure. Often we say, Jesus, I'll follow you if you'll just make sure this stays safe, this bank account stays full, My life is guarded. My family's life is guarded. I don't look like an idiot. Here's the problem. Those things become our gods in the process. By saying those things out loud, we're actually telling Jesus what we value more than Him. Jesus will not be a means to an end. 
You may be in here going, well, if I want to get my life together and I want to get a good job, then Jesus, you're going to be an option for me to ask you to give me those things. And if you don't give me those things, then maybe it doesn't work. Jesus will not be a means to an end. He is the goal. Jesus is the goal for the Christ follower, not the stuff that we want. And this calling of the disciples is a very clear picture, as though, although we don't have much of the details in Mark, we do have other details in the rest of the gospel accounts. But we do see that it was a question of, is Jesus worth everything? And to these men, in this moment, they understood something about him was different. And so they left it all. The invitation is the same for you and I. But the problem is, Jesus said, anyone who wants to be my disciple. In the United States, it's as if we have come up with levels or tiers of involvement with the mission of Christ. It's as if Jesus said, all of you, follow me with all of your life. But because you're here today, I will give you a platinum deal where you don't have to follow me with all of your life, but if you'll platinum level entry into the Christian walk, you'll get a gold plaque on the back of your seat, and you will have a seat next to me in heaven, but you don't have to follow me with everything. But wait a minute, there's more. If you buy in now, we'll downgrade that commitment level to gold. So you just kind of show up whenever you give, when it's convenient. You maybe crack your Bible because you want to impress people. Oh, wait, wait. No, hold on. Stop. You're, you're, some of you are walking away. Oh, silver package. Silver package, Christ following. We'll let you do this. Easter, Christmas only. How's that, right? That sounds good. No, you're still walking away. I'm still asking too much. Bronze. Bronze commitment level. Just say you're a Christian. Unfortunately, this was not Jesus' invite to us. There are no levels. There are no tears. There are no super Christians. There are, this is this, it's like there's, there's me and then there's Lottie Moon. There's me and then there's the martyrs. And there's, that's just another level of following Jesus that I'm not for. And the reality is, he said, anyone who wants to be my disciple, anyone, he does not give us an out on a level of relationship. As you can imagine, the same questions that you might have may have been going on in the heads and the hearts of the disciples. I mean, they were going to take this to the nations. What languages was I going to have to learn? What kind of teachers would I encounter? What kind of false gods would I have to speak against? All this fear, where am I going to have to go? All, this, all these hesitations and anxiety, I'm sure it was all present. But where better to have your questions answered than with Jesus? Where better to have your fears and your anxieties and your doubts and your worries to have them answered than being with Jesus. And amazingly, in the next several scenes in Mark chapter 1, I call these scenes of reassurance, to be honest, because it's the disciples looking in and watching Jesus do things that no one has ever done. And so when you see what Jesus does in the next couple of scenes, you begin to go, I'm sure the disciples were like, Phew, I think we made the right decision, man. As crazy as it sounded, I had some hesitations. I was like, this dude, he's calling me to follow him. I just got caught up in the moment. But man, do you see him doing what he's doing? And they were reassured just by watching Jesus in action. The next snapshot we see of Jesus is, is surprisingly his teaching. 
Because some of us are like, oh, teaching, uh, whatever. But the amazing part of Jesus' life is the uniqueness to the authority of his teaching. People were used to the traveling teacher who would come into their synagogue. Smaller towns and villages didn't have a rabbi, so there would be traveling guys who would come and teach and unpack God's law and interpret it for them. So they were used to that. What they were not used to was the way Jesus communicated. Now, much of what he spoke about, we may or may not have a bunch of the records of. We do have a couple of instances, and so we're pretty sure this is what he did speak about. But what we do know when Jesus taught, this was the response. Mark chapter 1, verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. We do know that he spoke about the kingdom. We do know that he, he, he tied all the scriptures together. The Old Testament God is not some different God from the New Testament. But Jesus explained how all the scripture pointed to him. And people saw new authority. And that word authority, the root word is the same as author. And what's amazing to me about this is when people heard him speak, I can imagine they were like, this is totally different than some guy coming and telling us and interpreting the law. It's as if he's speaking directly to me. It's as if he knows my heart from inside and out because he's the author of life. When the author of life speaks, the characters, the created ones, understand the author knows our hearts. And so in that moment, those people who were going, this is different than anything I've ever sensed, is because it was Jesus, the author of life, was stirring his creation. And unfortunately, like I said, it wasn't all roses for everyone because oftentimes crowds were divided. Crowds were divided about Jesus and the way he would speak. And they're like, what? This guy's out of his mind. And another person's like, no, dude. <laughs> it's like it was me and him and he was just looking right at me. And I knew everything that he was talking about was directly to my heart. That is because the author had written himself in to the play. And he was coming and explaining life as it was meant to be lived. Fully alive. But his words not only stirred the hearts of people, his words silenced the words of another. In Mark chapter 1, verse 23, suddenly. Now, I love when gospel writers use the word suddenly. I feel like I should be like, oh. Do you ever do that when you're reading? Do you ever go suddenly? Oh, it's not the same effect as like a movie when something suddenly happens. But when an author uses the word suddenly, oh, just do it when you read. It's awesome. It's a lot of fun. Suddenly. A man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit began shouting, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus cut him short. Be quiet. Come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It has such authority, even evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. This interaction, and, and this is kind of how I really felt the Lord lead as, as I was preparing this week. This interaction is a collision of plans. And I want you to see this, and I want you to be very aware of the collision that is going on here. The evil spirit says to Jesus, why are you interfering with us? If you hear nothing today, hear this. The enemy is not random. 
The enemy is not kind of haphazard about his plans. The evil spirits are not random. The lies that the enemy speaks are not random. So when Jesus shows up, the enemy says, you're interfering with our plans. Do you know what his plans are? Not to mess with you, but to kill you, destroy you. That is his end. And I cannot stand when I hear people say, man, it's just like, it's like the enemy's messing with me. No, the enemy wants to kill you. He wants you dead. He does not want you to live. He wants everything about you destroyed, crushed, and ended. Do you know that if we were as panicked about the enemy's activity, if we stopped being embarrassed by saying that he exists, and if we were actually like, oh, there is someone out trying to kill me, do you know how we would run to the one who could rescue? If you were being chased by a murderer, you would be like, oh, not a big deal. No, you'd be like, run! Somebody help me! You would do anything and everything. But because we're, we're, we're Western Christians, we're American Christians, we're smarter than the enemy. We're smarter than his plans. We're ridiculous. That's really what we are. The time that we spend mocking the enemy's existence, if we would spend more time going, he really does want to kill me, we would be more convinced to cling to the rescuer. We would be more convinced to cling to Jesus and go, Jesus, your words alone speak life. This guy's lying to me and he wants me dead. Help me! This is how we would live. But we're American Christians. We're smarter than the devil. But what I love about Jesus and his encounter with this evil spirit is his intensity. See, I think we have this Jesus skipping through the woods mentality. Jesus meek and mild. So when Jesus shows up with this evil spirit, um, evil spirit, do you do me a favor and just tone it down? Just tone it down for a minute. Be quiet, because I'm Jesus meek and mild. That's how we picture him. And the reality is, if you need to cover the ears of your children, Jesus looks at this evil spirit and says, S-H-U-T-U-P. I spelled it. I didn't say it, parents. He said, shut up. The interpretation there is be muzzled. Jesus' intensity at how he dealt with the evil spirit. It wasn't a wrestling. It wasn't like Jesus was like, oh, come on, buddy, we're playing tug of war here. You'll give a little bit, I'll give a little bit. we got to make this look good for the people. No, Jesus spoke. The authority was settled. The evil spirit was done. And it is a foreshadowing of the end of the enemy for you and I to know that there will be a day where the enemy will have his mouth silenced he will not be able to speak against God's people or the authority of God ever again. Exactly, right? Woohoo! And you know, the sad indictment here is the evil spirit recognizes Jesus' identity and why he's here. He says, I know who you are. You're the Son of God. Why are you here? To destroy our works, aren't you? And why is that so sad? Because the demons have a higher view than Jesus than some of us in this church do. The demons have a higher view of Jesus and what he came to do than some of us in the American church. 
But see, their announcement isn't by faith. Their announcement is they tremble in fear and they have to announce Jesus for who he is. You see, Peter announced, Jesus, you are the Son of God because the Lord introduced himself to Peter. The devil believes and the demons believe that God is who he says he is, but they tremble in fear because it's a matter-of-fact statement. They know. They know. We're the ones who may or may not. And what's amazing about this picture is that at Jesus' command, he was done. You see, in Genesis, the enemy had his chance to speak. The people, they had their chance to believe the lies. But Jesus breaking in on the scene, his authority being shown, his authority being made clear, is a foreshadowing that the lies, they will come to an end. And the kingdom was breaking in. Truth was showing up. And that is very good news. See, not only was Jesus' interaction with the demon-possessed man a show of his authority, but it was a show of his act of mercy in freeing this man and making him whole. God's plan was breaking through into the earth. This plan for wholeness, this plan for restoration, this plan for healing is all a foreshadow of God's plan of eventual resurrection and rescue of his people. Genesis to Revelation coming to pass, Jesus breaking in on the scene. Everything Jesus does either introduces us to life or life given or life resurrected. And Jesus' visit with Simon's mother-in-law, we see her sick. He goes in, and and obviously the disciples had a different view of Jesus because you just don't introduce people to your sick mom. (laughs) You just don't do that. You just don't come over and be like, hey, hey, you're a normal guy. Why don't you come in here and meet my sick mom? No, we don't do that. They They have a view of Jesus as one that, man, this dude, he does stuff. And when he gets around sick people, they get well. So Jesus comes in and stands next to the bed, and he takes her by the hand, helps her sit up. Immediately she is healed. We see another scene in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus is approached by a man with leprosy. And Jesus reaches out and touches this man and he's instantly healed. There's two different instances of sickness. Both have one thing in common. Jesus didn't just say, get well, get well soon. I hope you will get well. He does something beyond speaking to them. He touches them. Do not miss this fact Jesus, the word, could have spoken and they could have been like, oh man, I'm healed. But he didn't do it that way. He came close, grabs a sick woman by the hand, pulls her up, touches a man with leprosy who probably had not been touched in years for one simple fear. And as Miss Sue said it, the laws of nature don't work the way Jesus works with us. See, no clean rooms make sick rooms clean. If a room is marked as clean, if it is infected, the whole room is done. See, wouldn't it be awesome if well children at middle school and elementary school, the ones who were well, if they gave like hugs to sick kids, their wellness would rub off on their sickness? That would be my favorite or my kids wouldn't come home with coughs all the time. It doesn't work that way in reality. We see that. We go, no, sickness transfers to wellness. 
But yet we see something happening very different when Jesus shows up. To the Jewish custom, impure touching something pure was a sure sign that it had been defiled. People with leprosy were used to being brought to the priest, examined and pronounced unclean. Imagine having that mark put over your head and you walk with that. Imagine hearing you're unclean and you must wear this as a badge and you must announce it if clean people are near you. Imagine having to sit and sit in the corner or your filth or wherever you are and if someone that was clean was coming close to you, you had to announce your own disgusting, unclean filth that was marking you. It was your badge. It was how people looked at you. It was how they saw you. And you even had to announce it. Settling into that, resigning to that being normal life. And there was no other way for something else to happen. Leprosy was perhaps the most tragic illness of the day because it was not silent suffering. Because that's what we do as Christians, right? When we struggle with secret sin stuff, we, we, it can stay inside, but we can put on a face, right? A, right? a smile face, we can do that. But with leprosy, you could not struggle or suffer silently because it was on the outside, And the thing about leprosy was, is it didn't immediately kill you. It was a slow death. It was scarring. And it freaked people out when they saw the effects of this skin disease just eating you away. You were marked by it. And it was on the outside. There was no running from this mark. Knowing this and hearing about Jesus coming to town, desperate, the leper makes one final leap. And it's a declaration of his faith that Jesus can heal him if he will. Mark 1.40 says, A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. There's no, no, no fee I can pay, no cure I can find. This is it. This is my last ditch effort. If you can't do anything here, I am finished. But then Mark captures a moment that we can't see, but it's made very clear by his writing. Verse 41 says, Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said. Be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. I think we like that phrase right there, with compassion. I prefer the earlier translations because I think it communicates the point much clearer. The earlier translations suggest moved with anger. Some translations say indignant he reached out and healed this man. And some of us are like, what? Why would he be mad? Why would he be mad at this man for asking that? Oh, you people are so frustrating. Okay. That's what we would see it. That's why we, that's why we like the word compassion. But the reality is compassion is anchored and fueled by us going, this isn't right. And so we move and we do something about it. It's the same way when, when as a father, I watch my children or I watch my, my, my kids suffer with a, a virus or, and it's completely debilitating to them. The, I look on that and I get mad, not just because I'm not sleeping, okay? 
I get mad because that thing is ravaging my kid's body. I get angry because I can't do anything, and I'm trying to get them to somebody that can do something. I'm moved, and I'm this anger, this compassion says, no, I have to take them, and I have to get them help. I have to do something because they're not well. I have to help them. It's the same thing. It's the same way you and I should respond to knowing that there are 127 million slaves in the world. More than when slavery was being fought against in the U.S. There are more modern day slaves in the world today than there has ever been in the existence of the world. 127 million into forced labor and to sex trafficking. That stirs us with anger and it should. But it remains pity if we do nothing. Compassion is that. Action, And what we see with Jesus is he is not fine with sin. He is not okay with the sickness and death that infects his creation. He is angry about it. He is raging and he is in the motion towards dealing with it. And he's touching this leper and saying, you be well. This sin will have its day, yes, but it will come to an end, and it is a foreshadow of what is coming. Now, as Nate and Ben come and close, at Jesus' touching of this, this man who was unclean, I can only imagine the disciples hiding behind Jesus in this moment, going, no, 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 wait, don't touch this perfectly clean human being. Jesus' interaction with these people is not just a story of who Jesus is, but it's a story of who we are as well. Jesus' act of coming and humbling himself and interacting with those that the crowds had written off is to help us understand we ourselves have nothing in common except we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. He has reached to us and made us clean. And so we, in turn, go and reach to others. There is no one who is outside the care. There is no one who is too far from his arm to save. There is no one that we don't reach to. This involves the all of me call to follow Jesus. See, when we, when we settle in for a bronze or a silver status Christ following, we won't reach to the people Jesus reached to. But when we say, Jesus, you've reached to me, and I know what I'm capable of, there is no one out of bounds. I can give my life so that someone else might have life as well. Jesus is not afraid of our sin, but could we be afraid of his love? I think that's our bigger struggle. We'll use smoke screens and we'll use excuses Say, I don't know, Jesus probably doesn't want to have anything to do with me because I got this, 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 and this. But the reality is I think we're feared. We are afraid of his love for us. Fully knowing us, fully being aware of what we're capable of, and still saying, no, 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 my invitation is for you to follow me. Let's just be honest with which way the fear goes. Because Jesus is not afraid of us. If anything... We are afraid of His love. This is where you and I do not have to be afraid of Christ's approach and invite. You and I can answer His follow me because He is the King. 
because he is the author. And the beauty of all of that is in humility he comes to us. His call will not crush us, but he was crushed for us. That's the beauty of the gospel and the invitation of Christ, believing that he has settled our debts. The miracles, the healing, the teaching, all works point to his ultimate work, taking the sin of the world, becoming sin for us on the cross, paying the debt that we owed, raising from the dead to confirm everything he said and did. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Father, thank you that the good news is an announcement and we get to see Jesus more clearly through his words, through his actions. And I ask that we would not buy into the gold level, even platinum level Christ following that somehow we've come up with in our brains, but that it would be an all of me following because you're worth it. You are the king. You are the authority that we have been so desperately looking for to throw ourselves at something. You are that someone. Don't let us settle. Don't let us settle for bronze level Christ following. But let us count the cost and see that you're worth it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.